Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 16. Hopefully, we will wrap up our study on chapter 16 this evening. Uh, but before we get into chapter 16, I did want to continue to thank all of you out there who continue to take time out of your busy schedules, tuning in to Seeds of Truth. I know a number of you have been emailing me and asking me a lot of questions, just not about the book of Revelation, but more generally about the Catholic faith. And while again, we couldn't get into all those questions now, in many cases, I take your questions and respond to them in the stream of my, my teaching here on the book of Revelation. I did want to say that, you know, it takes a lot to ask a question and to engage in a dialogue with someone. And as I was driving over here this evening, I was thinking about how many times in the last 10 years, as now we are wrapping up our 10th year of this programming uh, of just not Seeds of Truth, but as it started as the Catholic Hour, right? Of how many of you have taken time out of your busy schedule? It really is uh, amazing to me to think about the many encounters that I've had uh, and the willingness you've had to encounter me especially if you do not belong to the Roman Catholic faith, that you are willing to talk about our differences, our similarities, and ultimately why you might be struggling with the Catholic faith or the Catholic Church. It really means a lot to me that you're willing to put yourself out there. I don't know if I've ever really talked about this, but again, as I was heading over here this, this evening, it really did strike me that I have gotten to know a great number of you because of this radio program, because you've reached out to me by way of email or even the telephone to, to ask a question or to just make an observation. If not, connect with me if you're local for coffee. And it does mean a lot to me. It means a lot to me that you are uh, willing to go there and to make the sacrifices necessary. And it shows me something else. It shows me that your faith is very important to you, right? <laughs> If there's something that we disagree about, you want to know what? I want to talk about that. There's very few things that I appreciate more than that, right? That you see a difference and that you want to talk about that difference. And again, not to overuse a word, but that you're willing to talk about that difference. Because for myself, as I listen to, to people who uh, give talks about their faith tradition and ultimately are talking about something that I don't agree with, it's important to me to be able to engage that person and to be willing to have a temperate, might I say, <laughs> conversation and dialogue about it. So again, it's just appreciated, and I cannot encourage you enough that if you are one out there, please do not hesitate to call me or, or to email me or to go to my uh, website at joeholcraft.org and just hit the contact link button there and send your message, observation, or desire to meet with me on its way. It's all very important, and it's very much of what this radio program is all about, right, of planting seeds of just not the truths of sacred scripture and the larger deposit of faith, but ultimately truths that lead to an encounter, 
an encounter with Christ, yes, but also an encounter with one another. Okay, all that being said, if you do have your Bibles out there, if you want to open up uh, to chapter 16, and we will start with verse 16. I think, yeah, I think we left off at verse 15. So Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. And they assembled them at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. All right, now Armageddon, we are all familiar with that word, not because of the movie, the Hollywood movie that was put out a number of years ago, but because of how this word, which is actually a place, right, Armageddon, has been tied to the apocalyptic. Now, much has been made over the course of history of the Battle of Armageddon. Some of the wildest apocalyptic theories have been centered on this battle. So the question that begs to be asked is, what was John actually talking about? And once again, we have to go with what the word means. Huh? If you've heard me do this one time, you've probably heard me do this over a hundred times. What does this word mean? What is its context? Well, the word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew words Har-Mageddon, which means literally Mount of Megiddo. Yet what's interesting about this is the city of Megiddo was not built on a mountain, and maybe we didn't know that, but it was actually built on a plain. Interpreters therefore recognize that John is actually combining different images. Huh? You see how important it is to get behind a word, or maybe better said, underneath a word? Because often it is very relevant to what the author in sacred scripture is trying to convey. In this case, as many commentaries get into, and certainly Michael Barber does in his work coming soon, So what could be said? What could be had about this word? Well, first, Megiddo is mentioned because it was the site of one of Israel's most famous tragic battles, right? Where the beloved King Josiah, having disobeyed God, went out to fight with the king of Egypt and was killed on the battlefield. If you were to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 to 25, this is where you read of that famous battle. You know, I was asked recently, I think I mentioned this the other day on the radio, what's the importance of books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, First and Second uh, Chronicles? These books seem so isolated, remote, almost trivial. No, they are very important. Of course, every book in the Bible is very important. But for the purposes of interpreting the book of Revelation, very important. As you can appreciate here in this case, that to better understand what this word is about you do have to go back into history. And part of that going back into history is what can be found in Second Chronicles 35, verses 20 to 25. Essentially, what can be gleaned from this? Well, this war, this war that involved King Josiah and shocking death of Josiah, we should say, made such a lasting impression on Israel that its people were still mourning the event centuries later. This battle had essentially become the symbol of a war in which Israel would suffer terrible defeat. Secondly, Zechariah links Megiddo with an apocalyptic battle in which the enemies of Jerusalem will be destroyed. If you were to go to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, it is clear that John is thinking of this passage since Revelation 16 has so many parallels with the final prophecies in Zechariah. Michael Barmer makes the necessary links. If you were to go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, 
and Revelation 16, verse 14, you see the very specific parallel in how both speak of the nations being gathered for battle against the city of Jerusalem. In Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 to 5, we have a direct parallel with Revelation chapter 16, verses 18 to 19, where both speak of an earthquake and the splitting of the city. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2, corresponds with Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, where both speak of false prophets and evil spirits. In Zechariah 14, 12 and 16, verses 1 to 21, both describe the Lord sending, what did we talk about the other day? But plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt. Some have speculated that the mountain of Megiddo is Mount Carmel, which is near the city. John's imagery, however, is probably, again, the result of a combination of several Old Testament passages, something we have seen John do frequently already throughout the book of Revelation, throughout his apocalyptic vision, right? Now, by alluding to Megiddo, John also recalls a war in which the people of Jerusalem were defeated. By adding the image of a battle on a mountain, he evokes passages from the prophets, and this would appear to be quite intentional from John. Passages which speak of final devastation. Isaiah prophesied that Babylon's destruction would occur on the Mount of Assembly, he says in Isaiah 14:13. Ezekiel predicted the apocalyptic battle would occur on the mountains of Israel, where God's enemies would be crushed once and for all. So the term Armageddon thus symbolizes, my friends, that Jerusalem is what but the new Babylon receiving its final catastrophic judgment. Here, the enemies of God's people will be defeated. Okay, how about verses 17 to 19? The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as never been since men were on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered great Babylon to make her drain the cup of the fury of his wrath. Wow. <laughs> As we've already noted, Zechariah also predicted an earthquake, which would split the city of Jerusalem apart. Ezekiel was also told to prophesy that Jerusalem would be divided into thirds for its what? Unfaithfulness. Now, I don't always have you do this, but on this occasion, if you have your Bibles out there, I want you to flip to Ezekiel chapter 5, and we'll start here with verse 7. Such a direct parallel and certainly some words that come to us from Ezekiel that we ought to consider. This is Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around about you, and have not walked in my statutes or kept my ordinances, but have acted according to the ordinances of the nations that are round about you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgment in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again." Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in the midst of you, and sons shall eat their fathers. A third part of you shall die of pestilence 
and be consumed with famine in the midst of you. A third part shall fall by the sword round about you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Wow. <laughs> this long citation aptly describes all that we have seen so far concerning Jerusalem's judgment. The reference to fathers eating their sons accurately describes the horrors of 70 AD. Recall what we talked about the other day, huh? Even the three categories of judgments mentioned by Ezekiel, those killed by famine and pestilence, those killed by the sword, and those scattered, also resonate with Josephus' account. Once the soldiers broke through the wall and, and came in to destroy those left in the city, Josephus describes what happened. Listen to what Josephus had to say. Those Romans slew some of them, some they carried captives. They were also found slain there above 2,000 persons, partly by their own hands, partly by one another, but chiefly destroyed by the famine. Indeed, my friends, Jerusalem was defeated in part because the people of the city themselves were divided among three warring factions. Gosh, is not the history so important to this book? Okay, how about verses 20 to 21? And the, the famous great hailstones, huh? Verse 20, And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, heavy as a hundred weight, dropped on men from heaven, till men cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. All right. The portrayal of islands here, vanishing and, and mountains disappearing, may call to mind a great number of passages in the Old Testament that speak of the coming of the Lord. Just to name a few, Psalm 97, verse 5, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 20, and many others. It may also be a way of saying there's nowhere to run. <laughs> there's, there's nowhere to hide, since in so many ways throughout the book of the Old Testament, the mountains are described as hiding places in times of God's judgment. Now, the fiery hail that falls down to destroy the city certainly reminds us not only of the plagues of Egypt, but also of Sodom, which was destroyed by fire from heaven. Thus, just as Jerusalem's wickedness is described as resembling Sodom and Egypt, so too, my friends, it receives a similar judgment in the plagues and the fire from heaven. With the hail, God's judgment is complete. The final judgment of burning hailstones is described as the most fearful of all the plagues since it brings about the worst devastation. I still recall the, the lecture I heard at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, the lecture that involved, again, Josephus, where Josephus describes the Romans catapulting burning stones into the city. Now, these stones weighed a talent, which is the same weight as the hail that falls on the city in John's vision. In other words, a hundred weight can also be translated as talent. Even more are the words uttered by the people upon seeing the fiery stones. The sun cometh. The sun cometh. Okay, Michael Barber offers up a practical reflection here that I also wanted to speak to, applying the lessons of Revelation chapter 16 today. You know, Revelation chapter 16 describes 
God's final sevenfold judgment. This is what we have been treating, right? Notice that prior to this final judgment, God has already sent judgments through the seals and the trumpets. By sending judgment in stages, what does God do? But he gives us ample opportunity to repent. A word that you just can't get away from anytime you study the book of Revelation. Should this not be applied to our own lives? Brothers and sisters, God does not delight in judging his people. He is not an angry, vengeful God, simply waiting for us to cross the line so that he can zap us. He's not some institutional authoritarian up there, waving his punitive finger. No, God loves us. So his judgments are meant to bring us to our knees in penance, right? In this, we ought to see how God's judgment is actually an act of mercy. What does the book of Hebrews say in chapter 12, verse 6? For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Judgment comes then to get us to do what but repent. What does the psalmist say in chapter 119, verse 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes, thy way, thy path of, of holiness and saintliness. There's something else here, my friends. God's punishment is also simply letting us have what we want. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, if a man refuses to admit that he has a drinking problem, God may just allow him to lose all he has worked for so as to hit rock bottom. Only by hitting the bottom does he then look up and see the need to change. So by suffering the consequences of his actions, a person learns why God condemns sin. In other cases, God's punishment comes as a shock, an invasion, a war, suffering. Some people might suppose these kinds of trials indicate that God has abandoned his people. In fact, God draws close to them. Does not God draw close to those who might be suffering by shaking them up and bringing them to what? Repentance. In all of this, we are made to see how God is love, yes, and what that love looks like throughout divine revelation. We talk about the things we talk about now because God's love anywhere and everywhere, is always unconventional. Anytime you've, you think you've got it all figured out, usually that is when God turns you upside down. Why? Because he wants to flip your right side up, that you might come to see what you are made to see. You've heard me talk before about the end game. What is it all about? What is it all about? <laughs> Maybe you're listening to this this program, Seeds of Truth, for the first time. What is it all about? Is it not all about giving glory to God? Is it not all about doing anything and everything in your power so that you might be able to, to see the ways of God, to reveal the greatness of God? But it is also, as it is, yes, about giving glory to God here on earth, working towards salvation. And God will do anything at his disposal to make sure that you get to heaven. The thing of it is, he gives us free will. I have been asked the question so often, Joe, how is it that a God so loving allows so much evil? 
Well, my response to that question is, because God is so loving. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Sure it does. What we have to understand is, first and foremost, that God never imposes himself upon man, but rather proposes and invites. God is never going to coerce love out of you. Why? Because if it doesn't come from within, then it ceases to be love. You see, my friends, the moment I tell my children to love me is the moment I cease to understand the nature of love because love must always be freely given. And oh, let me tell you, when my children perform acts of charity out of their love for their parents, for their family, for the wider community, what joy it brings. Why? Because love builds up. Love has a way of expanding things, huh? expanding things. So circling back to that initial question, why does a God so loving allow so much evil in the world? Well, my dear friends, in that free will, we make bad choices. We choose the wrong over the right, the evil over the good. And there's consequences to those actions. That's why what we were just talking about is so important. God will do anything at his disposal to get our attention, to remind us that we aren't God. We aren't the ones in control. I mean, what are we in control of? We are in control of our actions. But it's how those actions correspond with God's will that reveals the glory of God. That in the end, my friends, has us working progressively towards salvation, towards heaven, climbing that ladder, if you will, that we read about in Genesis 28, verse 12, Jacob's ladder. All of this is his mercy. And in the life of the church, the first act of mercy is what but the gift of baptism. Brothers and sisters, it is an act of mercy that he has given us the power to cry, Abba, Father. And it is in the light of that great invocation, Abba, Father, that we now have the new power, which is not something we have achieved on our own, but only by pure gift do we have so as to enter deeper into the life of God. And so what are we to do with this mercy? Give it away, right? Give it away. You know, earlier I was talking about God's unconventional love. I was talking about how God has a way of, again, flipping something upside down so as to turn it right side up. He does so because that's the nature and logic of love. You see, my friends, we can never possess God's love in so far as contain it, hold it. Why? Because what God teaches us on the cross is that love itself is only love if it is given away. Have we ever thought about that before? If you've been tuning in to this series on the book of Revelation, you are hopefully now informed about this very important truth, if you weren't already informed on it, right? That you can never possess God's love, but at best give it away. The paradox is, in giving it away is when you receive more of God's love. This is the marvelous cycle of God's love. You want more of God's love? Give more of God's love away. You want more joy? Give joy away. Because the more you give away, the more room you have inside of you to fill up. No one can ever have too much love. Why? Well, because love constitutes the very life of heaven. 
Paul says that the greatest of all virtues is love. Are faith and hope important? Of course they are. But will you need faith and hope in heaven? No. You will no longer have to have faith in Jesus Christ per se, the way we talk about it today, or hope in the heavenly Jerusalem as we might talk about it today. But love, love remains because it constitutes the very life of heaven because it's the very life of God. And so on the heels of this all-important chapter 16, as we take these verses and we apply them practically, we are made, my friends, to reflect how God uses every circumstance, every situation, every encounter to draw us deeper into his love, even if it means sometimes sticking out his foot, that in falling, we now are made to look up, <laughs> okay, as opposed to look down. And it is in the looking up, reaching up and out to God, that we begin our relationship with God anew, crying, invoking, Abba. Father. Someone said to me recently, Joe, Romans 8 verses 14, 15 and following must be your favorite set of verses because I think it's what you quote the most. And you want to know what I would have to say that's probably true. If I quote it the most, then it's probably true. Those sets of verses that talk about how we didn't receive the spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship in which we cry, Abba, Father. A series of verses that then goes on to explain the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit welling up inside of us and praying for us in this groaning, in this sighing, in this moaning. There's no better place to be in the Christian and Catholic walk than to be moaning, groaning, sighing for God because it is the most powerful prayer according to, to Paul in Romans 8 because as he says, we don't know how to pray but it is always the Spirit praying inside of us, right? The Spirit praying inside of us. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. I was just about to get into chapter 17, but we will wait on chapter 17 until tomorrow. And so until tomorrow, please don't hesitate to send me your questions, comments, observations, mindful of what I talked about from the outset this evening. I really do enjoy your your questions that so often lead to new encounters. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time together. And really, this is a gift, a gift from which we can draw from, hopefully by your grace, to renew our relationships with you, a relationship in which you call us to give back to you each and every day that we might actually see each and every moment charged, pregnant, with eternal significance, whatever we may be doing or however we may be doing, that we are mindful how you are working in the present moment. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.